The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Danielle Reed. She is the Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The center's mission is to improve health and well-being by advancing the scientific understanding of taste, smell, and related senses. Dr. Reed holds a Ph.D. in psychology from Yale University, and her research interests focus largely on why people differ in their sense of taste and smell. However, recently she has been studying person-to-person differences in the loss of taste and smell as a result of COVID-19 as part of the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research, and we'll be talking about that today. Welcome, Dr. Reed. It's great to have you. Yes, likewise. I'm super happy to be here. Well, I have to ask you, how did you initially become interested in sensory research? It really started with my interest in just why people are different one from another. And I was doing some work in the psychology department at Yale, and one of the professors there gave me this little clear liquid to drink. And I put some in my mouth, and to me it was like water. And I was like, I don't really see what the big deal is here. And then I turned my head, and it was clear that other people who were sampling it were really like convulsing. It was so bitter. And I kind of had that aha moment of like, this is a really a profound difference between people and it's really worth knowing more about. So that sort of was the first chapter in a long story about exactly why it is that people are different one from another. Well, COVID-19 has been such an interesting case study on so many levels. But when I learned that one of the key factors in identifying whether or not you might have COVID is this loss of taste and smell... I immediately thought of some of my own experiences working as a clinical dietitian early in my career where people suffered severe losses, mostly related to disease or the treatment of disease. And I'm thinking specifically of cancer therapy and cancer drugs where they would say that meat suddenly tasted metallic or the coffee that they loved for so long suddenly tasted terribly. And so the thought of losing our sense of taste and smell seems really frightening to me when I consider how much I love food and breathing in the aromas of beautiful scents. Yeah, it's really one of those things where it occupies this sort of strange middle ground because people often, when they think about losing their sense, their senses, like they think of hearing and sight and how much that would really remodel their whole lives if they had to accommodate those losses. Whereas sense of smell and the sense of taste you know, and there's a lot of pleasure that comes with that. And so what we're, one of the things we're losing when we lose our sense of taste and smell, or if it starts to distort, which is what you were alluding to with the cancer patients, is this loss of quality of life, the enjoyment. And so one of the things that's really vexing for people that are undergoing this, albeit if it's chemotherapy or if it's COVID, is this sort of strange sense that they 
shouldn't be complaining about it because, after all, it's only, quote-unquote, just the sense of taste and smell. But actually, it's really a profound loss for people. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it would be hugely profound. And yet, I too think that we take a lot of things for granted, including those senses, until we lose them. And I remember learning about how people are attracted to other people, like partners, and how much smell is involved with that. And then, of course, just the whole food realm and how our digestive enzymes actually can start, you know, we start producing digestive enzymes with just the smell of food being cooked. So this really must have a profound physiological impact on our nutritional health and overall sense of well-being. Yeah, you make a really great point. And just to pick up on that, so one of the things that we think about Pavlov's dog, right, the bell rings and his dog smells the wonderful meat aroma and that gets the salivation really moving. And so one of the things that people who have lost their sense of taste and smell report is that not only do they not take pleasure in the food, but they don't feel well when they eat. And, you know, part of that is that if you can imagine just a hunk of food or whatever sort of showing up in your stomach without all of the time to prepare and to be ready for it, the salivation, the, you know, peristalsis, all those things, that's really one of the things that makes it really unpleasant for people that have lost their sense of taste and smell to eat things. That's fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't thought of peristalsis, and that's the muscular movement that extends through our digestive tract to move food through. And so you're right, the body can't prep and handle food as well. I'm curious now even to think about absorption that might be compromised because of the loss of something as quote-unquote simple as the loss of taste and smell. Exactly. And I've, I'm sure we've all had the experience, like I certainly had this experience when I was, you know, a new working mother and I had like three minutes to eat my lunch, you know, right. before I had to race off to do the next thing. And I would just wolf down my food. I wouldn't savor it. I wouldn't chew very carefully. I wouldn't smell. I wouldn't really take the time to relax. So I just sort of shove it in as fast as I could. And then it was on to the next thing. And of course, I'll, you know, I just didn't feel good afterwards. And I think that what happens with people who have lost their sense of taste and smell is that that sort of sensation, but writ much larger. It's sort of a bigger problem that is just that when we don't necessarily relax and enjoy our food. Right. Well, I have heard that people with COVID, some have lost significant amounts of weight just because they've lost the pleasure of eating and they just don't eat. Right. So you that is really an important thing. But, you know, there's another side to that. So what we see is actually there's two camps here. So we see the people that are just as you described. They can't taste their food. They can't smell their food. They're not interested in eating. They kind of just get by with the minimum and they get undernourished and they lose weight and they become often frail. So that's definitely one path that people have. But then there's this other path. And that's people who they're feeling like they're just sort of searching for something that they're searching for that satisfaction with food that just never comes. So particularly people that have lost their sense of smell, but they still have a little bit of taste so they can kind of get the sugar, they can kind of get the salt, and they're trying to get that satisfaction. So they eat, 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 and they just don't, it just doesn't satisfy and so those people we find are actually getting heavier and they're putting on weight. So we see this sort of split 
of these two different camps of how people respond. Yeah, that is so interesting. Well, I just saw the numbers. At the time of this interview, we have surpassed 78 million people in the United States who have contracted COVID-19. And in preparation for this interview, I was reading a little bit about what some of the statistics are, and I saw that, what is it, about 77% of people with COVID-19 experience smell loss. What is the percentage of people who will get some recovery? We think about 85% of people are going to get back to just about where they were before they had COVID. So I wouldn't say it's fully recovered, but they're close. They don't necessarily notice their daily lives are different. But of course, the double of that statistic is we think that there's about 10 or 15% of people who fall in the other direction, which is they have what we call sustained um, taste and smell loss. Now, we don't like to say permanent because who knows? Permanent, we don't know. Right. Um, But what we can say is things are not improving. And the sad thing is, is that for a lot of these folks, it's not necessarily only that they're not getting their sense of taste or smell back, but they're getting what they're getting back is a little bit of something, but it's distorted. Mm. So they have something called parosmia in the sense of smell. So it's like this sort of perversion of different odors. And the thing that's the major offender, there are two things that are just heartbreaking. One is that people often report that coffee smells almost fecal and Ugh. has this very, I know, it's tragic. And the other thing people are reporting to us is that their pets are not smelling good. Now, we, we know that dogs and cats don't necessarily, quote unquote, smell good, but it's a very soothing and pleasant odor for those of us that love our animals. And then there's somehow this distortion that just makes the pet smell vile. And that's also just got its own ramifications, not in the food realm, but just in the quality of life realm. Sure. I wonder how many people are suddenly also offended by their partners. Yes. You know, honestly, I find people are much less forthcoming about that. I have a feeling if we were able to interview people confidentially and in a more private way, we might learn a lot more about that. But certainly people are more willing to to talk about how their pets are putting them off. And of course, as I said, the coffee just comes up as a chronic lament among people. Oh, yes. Well, on your website, on the Monell.org website, there are some strategies for understanding a lot about taste and smell. You've also got a great tool for parents to use with children about talking to your child about smell and taste, which I thought was fabulous. Tell me a little bit about that. One of the things that we really noticed when we started doing this research is how neglected it is to study the sense of taste and smell in children. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we're very used to having our kids have their eyesight measured and certainly their hearing measured as part of sort of the onboarding process, if you will, for the young. But we never do that for taste and smell. So I would imagine that for most of us who are parents, and particularly if your parents are very small children, you have no idea if your kids can taste or smell in a normal range. And so given that we don't know much about the healthy child in that realm, like there's no norms and standards and there's no tests, then when we're trying to talk to kids about their COVID symptoms and to try to assess the loss of taste and smell, that can be hard because those kids are not necessarily used to that kind of conversation. 
you know, they're used to having sort of a medical exam, but it never includes those kind of questions. And so mm-hmm. one of the things we were trying to do is just to socialize the idea about talking about taste and smell with children. And so then we're able to then evaluate how the kids are dealing with these symptoms of taste and smell loss. Now, what I will say is, is that the, you know, there's always a little bit of a silver lining to every black cloud. The one silver lining is, is that we notice that for kids who are very young, they do tend to retain their sense of taste and smell with COVID at a higher rate. So maybe only 5 or 10% are really suffering these losses. But that changes as the kids get older. And so by the time they're adolescents and young adults, they're up to the same rates as adults are, at least for the alpha and the gamma beta variant. So the initial of the COVID variant. Mm. Help me understand. I think the Omicron did not have as much smell or taste loss as the other variants. Is that correct? Yes. And we're just recently kind of untangling that question because one of the problems we were grappling with is, of course, people that have Omicron are often also vaccinated. So we were untangling, like, do you get benefits of being vaccinated or is Omicron just less of a bad actor? And we finally have enough data to say for sure that with Omicron, we're only seeing about five to six, maybe seven percent of people are reporting that smell loss. So it's definitely a lot better in that regard than, like, for instance, the very early, the alpha and the gamma beta, those guys in the very beginning of the pandemic. Great. Okay. That's good to know. Let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio and we are joined today by Dr. Danielle Reed, Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center based in Philadelphia. And we are honing in on COVID-19 and all of the taste and smell issues related to that particular virus. Of course, we will dive into some other reasons for smell and taste loss, but I am so curious to know what the mechanisms are. How do viruses, and in particular COVID-19, affect our smell and taste? What exactly goes awry? Do you know? We know a little bit. So here's what we know so far. So there are cells that are in inside of our nose, and we call it the roof of the nose. So if you just stuck your finger right on the bridge of your nose, right between your eyes, and you just touch that part of your face. If you went back a little bit, that's something that's called the roof of the nose. So the inside of the nose is very top, and there's a little patch up there called the olfactory epithelium, which just means that's the place where the smell cells are located. And these cells are really interesting because part of those cells face the nose, so they have like sort of a foot in the mucus of the nose, but then they also go into the brain. So it's sort of like a little highway into the brain. And we think that what happens is when the virus, the cells that are the sort of nurse cells, so the cells that look after these special sensory cells, see the virus, they send a big alarm bell. And that alarm bell essentially kind of rolls up the drawbridge and tells those smell cells to shut down, basically trying to protect the brain. And so, but when that that's in a very abrupt thing. And so when you talk to people who have have had experienced this COVID-associated smell loss, one of the things they'll often say is like one minute they were fine and the next minute they couldn't smell. It's very quick onset. Wow. And so those cells are really just trying to protect, we think, just trying to protect the brain. 
So that's what happens. And of course, the big problem is, is that when the enemy is gone, you know, when the virus is clear, it seems like for some people, their cells don't know that that war is over. It's sort of like you can imagine if the soldiers are still on the battlefield, but the enemy's not there and the soldiers are just making problems for the rest of the group. So it sort of has that feeling. It's sort of like the cells are still fighting, even though the virus is gone long after. And so that seems to really keep those cells not working. Mm. Well, you've got a great visual on your website that shows, I guess it's a cross-section of the skull where our olfactory system sits. And when you look at that, you realize just how complex those senses are and how unique it is that they work together so intricately. Absolutely. And so one of the things that's so interesting is that the smell loss, as you said before, is not so uncommon for other things, but taste loss is very uncommon. And so we were very, very surprised. And actually, there's been a lot of a um, little bit of infighting among the scientists about whether there's gen- what we would call genuine taste loss with COVID. And it turns out that when we make careful measurements, that people actually do lose, lose their sense of taste, like sour, sweet, salty, bitter, umami, that sense. And so what happens is that the brain doesn't get any information about flavor. So not only do you have not have your sense of smell through the nose, you're not getting anything from the tongue either. And so the brain is just left with this big void when it's trying to process information about food, for instance. Well, I have seen ads for things like smell kits in an attempt to help people get their sense of smell and taste back. Can you talk a little bit about the therapies that might be helpful to people who have lost their smell and taste? So there's two schools of thought here. The first school of thought is what we would call smell training. And that is exactly what it sounds like, which is you in purposefully and mindfully once or twice a day smell a variety of odorants and think about it. You sniff deeply. If it says lemon, you think of the lemon. And it's essentially trying to reawaken those cells that have shut down. And what we know about smell training is, is it works a little bit in some people. So it definitely is not harmful. So that's a big plus, won't hurt. And for some people, it does help. But it's also, it really takes a lot of dedication on the part of the person doing it because smelling these bottles every day feel like you can't smell anything and it can feel futile. And so one of the problems with smell training is just going the distance with it and keep working and keep doing it. And it's been hard to motivate people to stay with it. But it will help some people. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is to try to, if we can understand like why these cells are sleeping or shut down, we can try to reverse that process. So people are trying different types of drugs to try to improve this recovery process. And the quick answer is nothing seems to be working at all, really, at the moment. So it's a very hard message for people that are frustrated and suffering because we don't have something that's even minimally effective. There's no drugs that are minimally effective that are known yet. Mm. Well, there are other cases where people can lose their sense of smell and taste. Anosmia, I believe, is the word for that. And there are several reasons. So viral infections, COVID being one. But head trauma, I hadn't thought about the impact of head trauma, as well as aging, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, exposure to toxic chemicals. So there are many routes to 
getting to that end point that people should be aware of. Absolutely. So head trauma is a really interesting case in point because, as I said, there's a connection between the nose and the brain. And what I didn't tell you is that those very soft nerves go through these tubes of bone to get from the nose to the brain. And so if your head is hit abruptly, it's sort of like putting a very wet spaghetti noodle, a soft noodle through a metal colander. And if you shake it hard, you kind of shear off that soft spaghetti. And that's what happens to those nerves that connect nose to brain. So head trauma is really, you know, football players or people that have that sort of really jarring head motion, automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents. This is a very common way to get snow loss. Now, some people's nerves will grow back and they'll reconnect, but many do not. And, of course, the other things you mentioned, it seems that neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's One of the very early symptoms of that is often smell loss, premature smell loss, more than you would expect to see for somebody of a given age. That's interesting. All right. Now, you are helping to lead up something called the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research. Can you tell me about that? And then how can we get people involved if they indeed have had some sort of taste and smell loss themselves? So I know that the Global Consortium for Chemosensory Research is a mouthful. We call it GCCR, and that is an interesting formation. So in the very early days of the pandemic, like really literally the first few days, scientists who really care about taste and smell started emailing each other because they were so puzzled and interested in this potential symptom. And so really this organization is just came into being from nothing, really, of scientists banding together. So there's currently more than 700 scientists in 65 countries that are communicating with each other and trying to do research to help people to understand what's going on, really. So that's the GCCR. And we welcome all types of participation. We have a lot of people that are journalists and patient advocates. And, you know, we're really working toward trying to better understand all aspects of this. Now, The other thing people may really want to know about who are dealing with this issue for themselves is there is a new organization called STANA. That's the Smell and Taste Association of North America, STANA for short. It's a brand new organization, just as born, and they're trying to do two things. They're trying to form support communities for people who are dealing with this because the feelings of isolation That's really a huge thing for people, just getting people to talk to other people that understand what they're going through. That's a big part of it. But also, we really need to have people advocating for research because obviously we want to understand better so we can solve this correctly. You know, we can find real cures for this. So they're doing two things. So those are two organizations that would really welcome people's participation. Great. Is there anything else about COVID-19 specifically that you want our listeners to know? What I want people to know is don't forget. So people who are having sustained taste and smell loss, who, you know, they've had it for a year or two already. I know that my own living and lifestyle, I just want to put some of this behind me. I want to go and have fun and sort of forget about the pandemic. But I guess the main message is is that we're going to have people who are suffering with us for a long time, and I really want to make sure that their interests are protected and we really deal with people compassionately and thoughtfully who are trying to get better. 
Right. Well, your website, monell.org, that's M-O-N-E-L-L.org, is a fabulous resource for anyone who is going through this condition right now. And you've got a call for people who have had a cold or flu or COVID-19 to enter their data into this database. What specifically are you trying to tease out? We're trying to understand the subtle differences between what happens when you have case and smell loss with a cold versus a flu versus COVID-19, because we're hoping that that will help us point us in the right direction of how what's exactly wrong and how we can exactly cure it. And so that's one of the primary goals there. And we're really interested in having people fill in their data and to get that information from them. Okay, that sounds great. The other part of COVID-19 effects that I thought was so interesting, you've got some videos online at the website where there was a woman who was in her home and had a gas leak and had no idea. So not only are we missing out on quality of life, food, and smells, we maybe take for granted just how much our sense of smell and taste protect us against toxins. Absolutely. Prime case in point is, you know, I go into my garage and I don't necessarily notice that my husband has spilt gasoline on the floor from the lawnmower if I can't smell it, right? So yeah. the smell is really a, it's a safety thing. Now, we often go to food right away because that's near and dear to most of our heart. But honestly, our sense of smell keeps us safe. I wanted to ask you with regard to toxicity, and this is moving beyond COVID-19 now. When I was a dietitian early in my career, I had learned that bitter flavors tend to indicate that there's a toxin present, whereas sweet-tasting foods generally are safe. Is that true still today? Can we say that? Yes, there's a lot of truth in that. So many, many things that are, well, let's just back up and say dose makes the poison. So a lot of things in our food and drinks are bitter, and they wouldn't be poisonous unless we had a whole, whole lot of them. So caffeine's a wonderful example, which is a little bit of caffeine is a wonderful thing, but too much caffeine is a very bad thing indeed. And so bitter is a warning signal, and we like it for kids because one of the things we think about kids as being so sensitive to bitter is it keeps them safe from eating too much of foods and non-food items that can poison them. And of course, things that are sweet, like fruits, are very rarely, very, very rarely in nature ever harmful. And so it's a really quick safety signal for what is and is not good to eat. And we're used to really knowing what's safe to eat just because we're a social species and we're taught that this is good and this is not good. But if you can imagine people foraging back in the day in evolutionary time and they just had to, they were amongst plants, they didn't know what was good and not good, you really had to use that bitter detection to keep you safe. Right. Well, I think COVID-19 has given us an opportunity to really appreciate better our senses of smell and taste. And I love that you've got this resource for children. And I remember when my own children were young, we used to play a game where we'd put a blindfold on them and have them try to identify different foods. And it's fun to do that from a smell and taste perspective. So you've got that resource online, and I want to lead people to that. Our time is up, and I just want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to say anything that I might have missed. 
No, I think we're in good shape. You've done a good job of covering all the material, so I think I'm good. Well, with that, we will have to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Danielle Reed, Associate Director of the Monell Chemical Senses Center based in Philadelphia. I will provide a website, www.monell.org, where people can learn much more. Thank you so much, Dr. Reed. This has been fascinating. You're entirely welcome. Welcome.